Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat number 210 for the 5th of August, 2015. It's John Shire again hosting this week's podcast, and today I'm joined by Paul Ducklin. Good afternoon, Paul. Hello, John. I just realized when you said August that we are indeed sort of eight-twelfths of the way through the year, how time flies. Yes, it is indeed eight-twelfths of the way through the year. I'm back in Sofo Security Chatless Chat Studio One, uh, getting ready to take uh, my summer vacation and enjoy the, uh, the last little bits of summer that we do have left. So let's kick off this week with another Windows story. They seem to be coming uh, rather regularly these days. Uh, this time we're going to talk about the Windows Update Delivery Optimization feature, or WUDO, WUDO. I don't want to get into a pseudo-sudo debate over this one. But basically what this feature is, it's uh, something to do with the way that you get updates. And as with a bunch of the other features that Microsoft has been rolling out with Windows 10, it's another one of these opt-out services rather than opt-in. And again, you know, we say this quite often, but in security, I'd rather opt-in than opt-out. Um, and for those of you who are on limited bandwidth connections, this could have some uh, implications. And so the first thing that, uh, you know, we need to talk about is, is basically how you get these updates. And the updates can come either from Microsoft or they can actually come from other PCs, whether they're inside your network or outside your network. That's right, John. It's sort of like Redmond goes Napster. If you're looking for an update that your neighbor just downloaded, why not get the file from them instead of going all the way back to Microsoft to fetch it? Well, that's just it. And so the, the, you know, the first question that begs to be asked is, is this actually a safe way to get your updates from Microsoft? So you're getting allegedly trusted updates from an untrusted computer. Yes. The obvious use case is that if you've got three computers at home and one of them updates first, then the other two could update from that. And that seems less of a security nightmare, but it's still not quite the same thing, is it, as going back to the trusted source. It's sort of like letting your neighbor go and fetch your post from the PO box and bring it back and give it to you. The bottom line, though, is that as long as your computer connects to Microsoft's trusted service first and downloads some kind of cryptographic catalog, what's called a manifest, then essentially wherever it gets the subsequent files from that are supposed to match up to the manifest, it can still perform the same kind of cryptographic validation that it would if the file had come directly from Microsoft. You might get a file that's damaged, whether by accident or by design doesn't matter, you'll be able to detect that throw it away and start again. Right. So now you've started downloading your updates from nearby peers, whether they're inside or outside your network. What about this whole give to receive? So in, in many, you know, the peer to peer circles, you actually get maybe a bit better treatment if you actually seed back into the network, as it's called. No one likes a leech, eh? Exactly. Uh, well, except for medieval doctors, I guess. Um, is this something that Microsoft has taken into account as well? Although this is opt out, and as you said, maybe it would be nicer if it were opt in, you can turn the whole thing off. And you can just say, I want to go and get updates from Microsoft only. So you don't have to participate in the peer to peer file sharing part. Uh, and there's also a middle ground option, which I think is very handy even if you're on a bandwidth limited connection, which says, I want to do this whole peer-to-peer -peer thing, but only with other computers on my own network. 
So if you've got three computers at home, in theory, you'd only have to download the update from Microsoft servers once, and then it would get redistributed inside your network. The default option, the used peers that are somewhere on the internet, my understanding is indeed you can't receive from peers without also at least giving some love back to the community, which I suppose is fair enough. Basically, all editions of Windows 10 have this option turned on by default. So if uh, you are choosing to move over to Windows 10, this is again one of those things like Wi-Fi Sense and some of the other things that we've talked about that you may want to take into consideration and have a look at before you actually deploy your machine. So moving on from Microsoft, let's talk a little bit about Tor. Now, uh, for those who are unfamiliar, Tor is, stands for the Onion Router, and it is a way of uh, basically browsing the web in anonymity. Um, now, you can either browse the, the, the public World Wide Web, or you can use Tor to access what's called the Dark Web as well. So these are basically hidden websites that aren't available that won't really show up on any Google search results. So we've talked a lot in the past about exit nodes and how they can potentially be compromised and what can be done with uh, those to serve up malware or redirect you places you don't want to go. This time it seems like they're focusing on the ingress rather than the egress path uh, and looking at what are called entry guards. And I, I actually didn't know that the entry nodes had an official term, but that's indeed what they're called. So that's a new one for me. Basically, to become an entry guard, you'd need to join the network as a relay and basically just demonstrate that you have some reliable uptime. And so these researchers started focusing on these entry guards, and what they were trying to figure out was, is there a way of ascertaining where people are going or who people are as they are browsing through the network? And it turns out that hidden services behave a little bit differently than do the public services that you may be accessing on the Tor network. Yes, it sort of stands to reason, doesn't it? If you think of it, this is not a great analogy, but it'll do. If you think of an automotive tunnel, when you're inside the tunnel, you get this sense of, hey, no one knows I'm in here. No one can see me from above. The satellites can't see me. If a helicopter's flying over, I'm completely invisible. But you have to go into the tunnel at some point and you have to come out at the other end. And ironically, you know, particularly in the freeway version of the story, those are actually places that are monitored quite strongly, not least because they typically charge you a toll for going through. Anyone who knows who's going in and who's come out at the other end can infer who's inside without actually watching them while they're inside. In Tor, the hidden web, basically they're sites that are inside the tunnel. So instead of going in, bouncing around inside of it and then emerging in some random place and going on to a, a site in the public view. You go into Tor and you actually do your web stuff inside. But that behavior, you can see why you might be able to measure subtle differences depending on which hidden site inside you're going to compared to traffic that's just running around through Tor to exit and go on to the public web. Yeah, so the researchers have found that there's a 98% true positive rate and less than 0.1% false positive rate with identifying that you are going to a hidden service. Now, the job becomes, all right, I'm going to a hidden service. Can I possibly figure out what kind of hidden service or which hidden service I'm going to? And the MIT researchers tackled that one as well by looking at certain features of the site that you were going to, such as network traffic or the sequences of packets or the size of packets. 
And so with that and, and with enough time and, and using a classifier, they were actually able to determine what kind of site you're going to. If you think about how sites in the open web work and look and behave, if you think of going to, say, Google.com and you get this mostly white space page with just the Google logo and the search bar on it, not much else, uh, compared to, say, going to Naked Security, where you get a list of uh, 20 current stories, visually, it's you can tell those apart across the room. And so it should be no surprise that actually by monitoring the way the two sites respond, even down to things like packet size and packet timing, uh, that they will tend to differentiate themselves even if they're trying not to. So let's move on to another story this week, which is that of the Zen hypervisor uh, vulnerability that was released and if you're not familiar with Zen, it's just another hypervisor, much like Microsoft or VMware, that allows you to run guest virtual machines on some physical hardware. Now, this particular vulnerability was that of a VM escape bug. Maybe you can describe for our listeners exactly what a VM escape vulnerability is. Well, John, as you said, the idea of a, of a hypervisor or a, a virtual machine manager is that you take one physical computer and you divvy it up into a load of essentially software computers. Of course, when you're doing that, it is of paramount importance that two guest virtual machines, these software computers that are running on the same physical hardware, must be in blissful ignorance about each other's existence. In other words, Without permission, one mustn't be able to reach out and stick its dirty fingers into another guest computer, or even worse, reach out from the simulated software computer it's running on and mess with the actual host operating system that's controlling the virtual machines. And unfortunately, in this case, there is a bug that could allow a guest operating system to do exactly that. That reminds me, uh, this sounds a lot like uh, another virtual machine escape that uh, we heard of recently back in May, that of the Venom virtual machine escape. Yes, surprisingly similar. The Venom bug, also in Zen and in other virtualization products that are derived from the uh, QEMU open source project, so that probably includes KVM and Oracle's VirtualBox as well, Venom was a bug in Zen's virtual floppy disk device. And <laughs> this new bug, which doesn't have a fancy name, uh, is a similar bug in the CD-ROM device. Um, now, in another related vulnerability story, there was also a vulnerability disclosed in Bind, which is uh, software used for DNS servers. This bug actually affects uh, quite a few uh, versions of the bind software. Uh, in, in a nutshell, basically what happens here is that a malformed packet can be uh, sent to bind servers, causing them to crash and resulting in a de denial of service. So one can imagine that if you send enough malformed packets to enough bind servers, then you could allegedly take down a, quite a large portion of uh, the network. Yes. So once again, this is a very important patch. Or maybe it's time if you're using Bind, but actually you need only a tiny subset of its features. Because remember, it is meant to be the reference implementation. It does absolutely everything. Maybe you want to simplify a bit and choose a leaner, meaner, cleaner implementation of DNS that suits your needs more precisely. 
Right. So if you're running your bind server inside of a Zen guest <laughs> with a CD-ROM drive, then you may want to ask a couple questions. Just as an aside, Sophos's public-facing services either don't use bind or are already patched. Good to know. Now, before we conclude, I just want to say that uh, Sophos will be at Black Hat 2015 in Las Vegas this week. Uh, be sure to drop by booth number 452 and say hi to the Sophos folks. Uh, your usual host, Chester Wisniewski, will be at the booth, as will uh, Simon Reed, the head of Sophos Labs. They actually will be doing a joint presentation. We will be doing additional live demos which relate to malware and malware research. And finally, we will be giving away our outrageously popular and cool Sophos socks along with some laptop stickers and tattoos while supplies last. I think those are the tattoos that you can remove later. So they're not like the traditional Vegas tattoo that remains with you even when you exit the state of Nevada. I think. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> they indeed are. They indeed are. With that, I will conclude Sophos Chetless Chat number 210. For all of your security news, please stroll on over to nakedsecurity.sophos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more on iTunes, on the TuneIn app, and on soundcloud.com slash sophosecurity. And until next time, stay secure. <laughs>